Good morning, Dogs of Church. Today's scripture reading will be coming from Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, we're in our uh, series on the book of Romans entitled The Gospel Changes Everything. And uh, we find ourselves today in chapter 12 of Paul's letter. And as you heard the scripture reading, if you're paying attention, it's a really, really practical section. Uh, But before we get into it, you have to understand kind of what sets up this section. And it's really set up by the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bible or your app, you can take a look at them. If not, then uh, you can just sit there and listen. But Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is Paul has been uh, laying out the gospel, and now he threw out the book of Romans, and now he, is, he says this, the beginning of the chapter, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all the things that he has said, brothers, by the mercies of God, here's what he appeals to us to do, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. In other words, he said that because of all that God has done, the only reasonable response that we have is to present ourselves, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice to God. Then he says, verse two, do not be, and this, he's saying this is how we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what we're saying whenever we say that the gospel changes everything. It's why the series is entitled that. Paul spends most of the book of Romans laying out just how good the good news is what gospel means, just how good the good news is. And I don't know if you as a Christian, if you're here today as a Christian, and maybe you're here today as a seeker, you're wondering about Christianity. I don't know if you understand if you really realize and get in your soul just how good the good news of Jesus is. If we truly understood that, we would be the most joyous people on the face of the planet. Our gatherings together would be one of the most joyful gatherings of anybody in the world. We couldn't contain our excitement if we could truly understand just a glimpse for a moment of just how good the good news of Jesus is. Uh, there was a time last night I was... Uh, kind of sermon prepping, but also watching the game, which probably meant like more watching the game, the Clemson game, by the way, the game last night. And, uh, and, and Megan was trying to share with me uh, something that she had written. And I was listening to her, but I was also watching the game. And guys, you know how that is. And 
um, ladies, you know how that is, and, or maybe vice versa. How, and I was sitting there, I was listening to her, watching the game, and she's, she's, she's sharing like, what she had written, and she's very excited to share this with me. And I was excited to listen to it, but yet for a moment I was overcome by greater excitement because Clemson had a boneheaded, terrible, one of the few, a boneheaded, terrible play in the game. And I just like, oh man, right in the middle of why she's trying to read to me. I'm just like, and she's like, she's, to the back, because you know why? Because I was more emotionally moved, sadly, by what happened on that television screen and on that field a few hours away by some teenagers and a couple of young 20-year-olds playing a game than I was what my wife was trying to tell me. What we are emotionally connected with stirs your soul. And if you truly realize how good the good news of Jesus is, it cannot help but have an effect on your life, on your relationships, and on our gatherings. This is how good it is. Paul tells us that we are all, every single one of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins because we have exchanged the truth of God for who he is for a lie and we've worshiped the creature rather than the creator. But he says, even though that's the case, we can be justified by grace through the redemption, by grace, that means no, no merit on your part, through the work of Jesus Christ. And that that redemption that is offered us through Jesus Christ is a free gift that can only be received by grace, not through faith, not anything that you do. When we are justified with God, he tells us, we have peace with God. No longer are we at war with God. You know, if you're here today and you're not a believer, the greatest problem in your life is not what you think it is. It's not your money or your marriage or your relationship with your friends or the lack of whatever is going on in your life. The real problem in your soul is that you do not have peace with God and that is what affects everything else that is going on in your life. And he says, through the redemption that is in Christ, we have peace with God. And not only that, but he says that God pours out the, his spirit upon those who become the children of God, enabling us and causing us from our very core to cry out back to him, Abba or Daddy, Father. God's spirit fills us and we are made children of God and made to know that we are children of God. And not only that, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to anyone who is now in Christ Jesus. Nothing that you have done, nothing that anybody says that you have done, it may be bad. It may be horrible. You may have done some really bad things. You may have betrayed some people very close to you, but, and that doesn't mean that that is okay or that is right, but here's what it means. It means that nothing that you have done is greater than the cross of Christ. And if you are a believer in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. And that changes everything. And here's what that means. If all that is true, then two things must be true. If all that is true, if the good news of Jesus is that good, if, his, if the gospel of Jesus changes everything about me and about how I view this world and life, then there are two things that must be true. Number one, that you and I must be changed. We have to be changed from who we used to be or who we are to who we are in Christ. We must be changed. But here's the other thing that's true is that we can be. We must be changed, but we can be. Did you hear that in that, those two verses that we started off with? He said, 
Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal the renewal of your mind. You and I must be changed, must be transformed. That is our reasonable or spiritual worship, but we can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that is what we mean by we, when we've been saying the past number of months that we wanna be an awakened people. And awake, being an awakened people, an awakened person is when our experiences begin to match the book. The way that we think and the way that we talk and the way that we interact with people no longer is just something that God says to do on the page but isn't reflected in my life, but it begins to be reflected in my life. It begins to be reflected in my thinking. It begins to be reflected in my emotions, in the way I act. My experience begins to match the book. It's when the spirit of Christ, we're awakened when the spirit of Christ so fills us and controls us that we start to look like Jesus. Do you know that you can do that? And that is what you're called to do as a believer. When he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind and don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, what he's saying is you must be and you can become more and more like Jesus. More and more like a redeemed version of yourself and less and less like your old self. And that's what Paul is talking about in our passage. He says, the, he's telling us that the life of the most normal Christian. So what he's talking about is not for the super Christian. It's not for the mature Christian alone. It's not for a guy or a, who is an elder or a lady who is a leader or a guy who's gonna become an elder. That they should reflect that. He's saying that this is what the life of the most normal Christian should look like. It's, he's saying that we should mirror the most radical and revolutionary aspects of Jesus' life and his teaching. Did you get that? Your life should be coming more and more to mirror the teaching and the life of Jesus. Here's what Jesus taught, Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to, their, to the false prophets. Uh, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, not as others do to you, we misquote this all the time. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. When Jesus said these things, they were revolutionary. They still are revolutionary. But here's how revolutionary they were. We have no recorded teachings of any authority who taught these things before Jesus. No religion, no great teacher, no moral person, nobody had ever taught the idea that you give to your enemy what they do not deserve. That when someone asks for your cloak or your jacket, you give them your, the shirt off your back as well. When someone asks you to walk a mile, you walk a second mile for them. And all those things are things that are not just like a friend asking you like, hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Though it would be included in that. Like, but it's also saying, hey, he's saying when people wrongfully do those things to you, do not man retribution or justice in return. 
When Jesus said these things, they were revolutionary and they are still revolutionary today. And you can understand why, right? Because we all start to ask the question, what will happen to me if I don't protect myself? Did you catch yourself thinking that? In church, sometimes we talk about the right answer and the real answer. And if you've been around church for a while, you know what the right answer is, right? Oh, I know what the right answer, what Jesus said to do here, but the real answer is that part back in your head that you won't share at community group. Where you think, I know that's what it says, but my, the core of who I am really says, I can't, I can't ensure what will happen if I offer to walk the second mile for someone who demands it. Or if I give someone more than what they ask for. But here's the thing that Jesus didn't just teach this. Jesus lived it out. In Luke 23, whenever he is literally hanging on the cross, what does he cry out from the cross? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And Isaiah, whenever he was prophesying about what that would look like, he said, he described Jesus and he said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus thought and he lived differently than anybody else in history. And he calls us, his followers, to do the same thing. Not a lesser version of that. Not a nice suburban middle class version of that. He calls anyone who would follow him to follow the same path. That's why he said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, which is a symbol of death, and follow me. We must be transformed. Look at how Paul describes it. Let's go back to the text, Romans 12, 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, Jesus, in his very life, he was motivated by an otherworldly kind of love. That was the motivation behind Jesus. An otherworldly kind of love. And he and Paul are saying that our lives should be motivated by that same kind of otherworldly love. Paul begins this section back in verse nine by saying, let love be genuine, which is a pretty strong command when you consider like, it's really hard to make yourself love somebody, isn't it? 
You can make yourself act loving to somebody, but it's impossible to make yourself love somebody. But yet he says, don't act lovingly to the people around you. He says, let love be genuine. In other words, from the very core of your being. He's saying that you and I as believers should live with an otherworldly kind of love that motivates us from the inside out, not the outside in. He's talking about a different kind of love than we often think about. We think about love, we think about romantic love, we think about love that, uh, by association, like this person's a member of my family, therefore I love them, or this person is my friend, and therefore I love them, and they're my friend because we get the same jokes, and we watch the same shows, or we work at the same place, we have the same interests, I get them, and they're, those people are not my friends because they do not share those things. We think about love by, like romantic love and love by association, but he's talking about a different kind of love. The Greek word here is agape. And what agape means is it, uh, it's an otherworldly kind of love. He's saying it means to love someone who is undeserving, despite rejection or disappointment. This otherworldly love that motivated Christ is supposed to motivate us. This agape love is a kind of love that loves others who do not deserve it despite rejection and disappointment. In fact, you can make an argument that you do not know or you are not exhibiting agape love to someone else unless they are undeserving in your eyes and unless you're experiencing rejection or disappointment with them. I can love people who like me and I like them just fine. That is not a big deal. Anybody loves people like that. If you watch the kind of shows that I watch and you laugh at the jokes that I tell or the jokes that, you, that, that we find in common fun like, that I laugh at, then, man, we have something in common. But it's when people do not, we think, we think, I think they don't deserve my love or I am constantly or am strongly disappointed or rejected by them. That's when it's agape love. Do you, Picture that when Jesus is now on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. A love that was totally undeserving. A love that was full of rejection. That's the love that Christ showed you and is showing you now. Because whether you're a believer or not, you do not deserve his love and you constantly disappoint him and you know that. And yet he places his agape love upon you in spite of your rejection and in spite of the times that you disappoint and don't fulfill and aren't worthy. And this, this, beloved, this is the true mark of Christian maturity. Christian maturity is not a technical knowledge of the Bible. Christian maturity is growing in agape love to the people who are around you, who are like you and those who are not like you. You can know it is possible for someone to have a technical knowledge of the entire Bible 
and yet be incredibly spiritually immature if they aren't growing in agape love. And yet it's possible for a believer in China who only owns one page of the Bible and studies that and prays over that and applies themselves to it deliberately and continually and knows far less about scripture than you or I would know but yet are growing in agape love, that believer is far more mature than you and I who could run circles around them in Bible trivia. Paul tells us, he's showing us what agape love looks like and he starts off by telling us both negative and positive statements. Here's what agape love doesn't look like and here's what it does look like. First, let's see what love isn't. He says, we're gonna kind of run through the passage of the negative statements that he makes. He says, do not curse those who persecute you. Do not curse those that persecute you. What that persecution means is primarily, it means that whenever we are being wrongfully treated because of our faith, because of our belief in Christ, that could be something small, like just people making fun of you, or it could be something really big like losing your job or losing your family or losing your life because of the what you believe, which happens continually around the globe, by the way. We should be praying for those who are in that situation. But he says, do not curse those who persecute you. And what he's saying is that whenever that happens, when you're being persecuted, you have been treating wrongly because of your faith. Persecution is not whenever you're done something wrong to them and you're at work and they're, they're wrong back. You're like, I'm being persecuted by the people at work. No, you're, you were just rude. Persecution is whenever you're being treated wrongly because of your faith. And he says, here's what he says. He says, don't curse them. And that means what comes out of our mouth to them or about them. But also in the picture and the language here is it means like what we wish happens to them. So not just what I say out loud or even whisper under my breath, but what in my soul am I pulling for to happen to them? Am I really hoping that something bad will happen to them or am I hoping for good for them even though they are persecuting me? And if that's true about being persecuted for your faith, how much more so is that true if someone's just treating you wrongly and you don't deserve it? Jesus said, pray for those who mistreat you. That should be our response. He's saying, don't wish bad things for those who mistreat you. In other words, when people give you what you don't deserve, don't give them what they deserve back. When people give you what you don't deserve, don't give them back what they do. That's what Jesus says to us and Paul says to us. Do not curse those who persecute you. And then he says, don't be haughty or do not be haughty. And here's what that means. Here's the question about that. Who do you associate with and why? Who do you associate with and why? In other words, don't associate with people because what they can do for you. And that can mean economically, that can mean socially, but can also just mean emotionally. If I only associate with people who I, who I feel comfortable around, if I only associate with people who I think will get me in a better place in life, if I only associate with people who I think are the right social class, whether at school or work or in life, 
If I only associate with them and not with other people, then I'm looking for them to meet some need for me and I'm not looking to see how can I be a service to the people around me. Do not be haughty, he says, do not, who do you associate with and why? Don't look down on people around you. Don't think that you're too good to hang out with other people or they're not good enough. Then he says, never be wise in your own sight. You know what that means? That means we can't trust our instincts to be right in every situation and in every moment. And we are so prone to do that. I'm prone to do that. I find myself so many times in conversations, it could be my wife or my kids or people at work or just, or even just online interactions or reading things from people online that I just automatically think I'm thinking the right thing and my way is the wise way and my way is the right way. And he says, agape love looks like not being wise in my own sight. In other words, I don't lean on my own understanding or my own appraisal of the situation. I lean on my father's wisdom And I glean that from his word and from relationships with people around me. It requires a certain amount of humility to God in order to be humble to people around you and be able to listen to their input about the things that you disagree with them on. He says then, repay no one evil for evil. What he's saying is agape love breaks the cycle of evil. If we always repay evil when someone is evil to us, it just creates a cycle of evil and we're adding more and more evil to the world. But he's saying agape love breaks the cycle. It's willing to say, I'm willing to absorb this evil, what you have done to me, and I'm not gonna pass it back to you or I'm not gonna pass it back to somebody else around me. I'm gonna absorb it. I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna take it to the Lord. I'm gonna take it to the cross, but I'm not gonna repay you for this evil that you have done. Neither am I going to go like, like the kid who gets in trouble with his parents and he turns around and kicks the dog. Like I'm not going to take it out on my wife or my kids or the people around me who just happen to be around whenever I'm frustrated or angry. He says, never avenge yourself. Do you feel that when, that you will be overcome if you don't stand up for yourself when people do, do wrong to you? Do you think if I don't speak up here, if I don't put a stop to this, then I'm just gonna be overwhelmed and overrun? Or do you actively think, I'm gonna agape love these people around me and let God take care of that? Then he says, do not be overcome with evil. When we give to others what they deserve, we are being overcome with evil ourselves, even if they deserve it. When you respond with evil to someone who has been evil to you, you are being overcome with evil. You're not dispensing justice. Because it already told us that God says, vengeance or justice is mine, I will repay it. It's not your job and my job to cause other other people to pay for what they have done to us or other people. We're gonna get the next chapter. That's the government's job as an agent of God. And that's God's ultimately his, his job alone that he will execute. But this is the natural way to react to people, right? 
when they're wrong to us, when they're evil to us, to respond evil back to them. But did you catch in that? Love isn't the source of any of those responses. He doesn't just call us, though, not to retaliate. Jesus and Paul go a step further. Agape love is not only not repaying evil for evil, but it goes another step. It says, I'm going to respond with good when evil is done to me. I'm going to go above and beyond. When they ask me to walk the mile, I'm going to offer to walk the second mile. When they strike me on this cheek, I'm going to turn and give them the other one as well. What he's saying is Christ's love compels us to give to others what we don't get in return. Christ's love compels us to give to others what we don't get in return. Listen to what he says. He says, don't curse, but then bless those who persecute you. Wish good for those who treat you wrongly. Seek to do good for them. Our response as believers when someone does wrong to us isn't just to stop the cycle, but it's to turn around and say, what good can I do for them? How can I pray for them? How can I serve them? How can I find a way to, to give them what they do not deserve because I have been given by Christ what I don't deserve? He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What that means is saying, join yourself to the lives of those around you without a disdain for where they are or without envy for where they are. Man, you're, you're feeling happy-go-lucky and, and someone in church is they're like, how are you doing? And they're like, man, my day is, my week was horrible. And you're like, man, I do not want to be around Debbie Downer. I am so sorry. And you move on to somebody who can talk about some football with. But instead saying, no, I'm not going to disdain this person. I'm going to stop and I'm going to share and I'm going to weep with those who weep. And then if someone around me and they get the house that I wanted or the car that I wanted or the job that I wanted, I'm not going to deny that that hurts and, and inside that I wish that was me. But what I am going to say is I'm going to say, God, give me your love for them so I can agape love them and not envy them. And I can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I can join myself to their life so that I truly understand that when a brother weeps, I must weep. And when our brother rejoices, I must rejoice. But not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but those who are outside of the church, that when I'm around them at work and in my family gatherings, that I work to, to uh, align myself and feel sympathy and empathy for the people who are around me. I rejoice when they rejoice and I weep when they weep. Not about ungodly things. But I can rejoice and weep with those who are going through like the debt, the normal like joys and trials of life. He says, live in harmony with one another. This requires humility and a sacrifice of our desires. He says, associate with the lowly. You can do that if you realize and you are motivated to realize that who you were to God before Christ. But if you realize that before Christ, you were an enemy of God, but now through Christ, you've been brought near and made a son or daughter of the king, then all of a sudden you can associate freely and gladly with those who are lowly because you know that's who I am and that's who I was. He says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Here's the question. Are you living your life as an ambassador of Jesus? Do you view your actions with your family 
and at your workplace and in your neighborhood and in the third places that you hang out and online, do you consider that your interactions with people in those places that you are doing so, not just representing yourself, not just representing your own thoughts and feelings, but you are doing so representing as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know what this means? That means that you do so with those who are around you who don't deserve it, for those who aren't like you. Paul admits that may not always be possible, but don't let the reason that there's not peace be because you didn't move towards them. And not just because you didn't take a first step like, hey, like waving at them, but actually moving towards them in humility and love and saying, hey, what do we have to do? You're my wife, you're my friend, you're my child, you're my coworker. What do I have to do to be at peace with you and that feel, you can feel at peace with me? That may mean that I apologize and they don't apologize in return. It may mean that you apologize to your spouse a thousand times before they offer an apology in return. But you say, I'm gonna agape love my spouse. It means you may agape love, forgive, and offer yourself in forgiveness to your parent or to your friend or to your coworker a thousand times before they ask you for repentance in return. And you say, I'm gonna agape love them. Leave it, he says, wrongdoing to the wrath of God. God is the judge. If your enemy is hungry, it says, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he says, this is an interesting statement, by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, the picture there is, uh, wherever the, the phrase comes from, the picture there is, is not saying, hey, you're gonna get vengeance on them by being nice to them. It's saying that by doing so, by being kind to them in return, you will hopefully and prayerfully lead them to a state of either repentance or shame where they will see your actions and repent of theirs, or they will see your actions and realize that they have not been loving in return, and maybe God can do something with that place that they're in. He says, overcome evil with good. That should be the effect of Christian presence, overcoming evil with good. When a people are awakened, it creates a community that looks like Jesus. It's compelling. Can you imagine what it would look like if we were to grow in this? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you grew in this? What would your marriage look like? What would your friendship look like if you agape love the people around you who don't deserve it and you gave them what they don't, what you aren't getting in return? How would it change your Thanksgiving dinner next month if you lived like that? How would it change the atmosphere at your workplace if just you, just you sought to agape love the people in your workplace around you? How would it change the nature of politics in our country if Christians began to operate in this way? No matter what your viewpoint is. How would it change how we interact with those who believe differently as Christians if we lived agape love. You know what it would look like? It would look a lot like Jesus. It would look like a lot of Jesuses being scattered out all across our community into different homes and neighborhoods and jobs and gyms and stores. 
That's why we're called Christians, little Christ. And here's the encouraging thing. This is the type of people that we can be and we must be. Does your life look like this? Is this the way that you respond to those who treat you wrongly? I'm not talking about abuse, by the way. I just want to be clear about that. If you're in an abusive situation, that's not a case where you simply return good to evil and you never do anything to your abuser. You can still break out of and stop an abusive relationship and still return good for evil without staying in a place that is dangerous for you. The question is, do you respond by giving good to others when you don't get it in return? Do you know how we can find the motivation to do so? The motivation for this otherworldly kind of love comes when we fill up our hearts with the love of Christ for us. When I am secure in the undeserving love of Christ to me, then all of a sudden I can find the wherewithal and the emotional stability to love others whenever they aren't loving me in return. Well, they aren't kind in return. And we fill up our hearts with the idea that the, of the absolute kingship, the sovereignty and authority of God. If I know that not only does God love me, but he has, has full authority and power to make all things that are unjust right, and that he will do so now or he will do, do so in the future, but I can trust that he will. And, then, and it also comes in when we have an assurance that Christ's victory is our victory. If you know that Christ's resurrection from the dead and his being seated at the right hand of the Father is your assurance that you will rise from the dead and you will be seated at the right hand of the Father and God will continually throughout eternity pour out his grace and love and goodness upon you and you will get nothing but the goodness and the smile of God upon your soul for all of eternity, if your soul is filled up with that, then you find the motivation, not just to not respond evil for evil, but to be motivated to go the next level and offer good in return. Second Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's where you find the motivation and the power to live as a compelling community to those around us. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your spirit. God, we wanna be a people who are part of this compelling community who uh, return good for evil, who give to others what we don't get in return because we found a secret source of life and joy in Christ. If there's any person here who has not discovered that, I pray they would this morning. Uh, God, I pray that you would do a work in our souls and our lives uh, to make us that kind of people, to make me that kind of person. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.